For those of you that have listened to the podcast, you know how big of a fan we are of Build a Trend and that we have used this software for the last four years. And many of the guests that we've brought on the podcast are also Build a Trend users. And in this day and age, with as busy as all of us are in construction, as complicated as it is with escalation pricing, lead times, tracking, organization, all of us need a good project management software to help simplify and organize our business. And there are a couple features that we love a ton about Build-A-Trend. And one is the owner portal. The other is the daily logs. And these are features that we use daily, right? Half of my clients are out of state. And as an owner, it is so imperative how we communicate with our clients, with our team, with our customers. And through Build-A-Trend, this allows us that quick connection. They can check at any time. We can communicate with them. We're up to date. This has actually helped us win jobs, win projects because of that organization, especially at pre-construction. And Build-A-Trend also offers a ton of service on the back end, training and understanding and workshops you know, to help us use our software effectively. They also have the podcast, The Building Code. To learn more, head to buildertrend.com backslash AFT to get a 60-day money-back guarantee on your Build-A-Trend account. That's 60 days to make sure you love this product with no pressure, and I know you will. Before we jump into the episode, I have to tell you about the newly renovated Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom in Scottsdale. They've partnered with over 16 local designers and cabinet companies, of which I know most of them. I can say that this really helps give the immersive experience for anybody wanting to visualize their future kitchen. It's a place to start, experience, and bring your vision to life. Product experts assist you throughout the entire project, view an array of options, and see them in full-size kitchen vignettes. Turn knobs, open drawers, ignite flames, determine the best fit for you. Chef-led demonstrations provide the opportunity to ask questions of the experts that use them every day. Schedule your appointment at subzero-wolf.com backslash Scottsdale, or you can call 480-921-0900. My decisions are based a lot on my gut. So when I'm interviewing somebody, if I don't feel like they're going to fit in or I feel like they're not a good culture fit for us, I don't even go any further anymore. It's everything. Welcome to the AT Construction Podcast. Today we have Tom Gallagher with us. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you on. So Tom is owner-founder of Gallagher Co. LLC, and uh, I think you have a pretty unique business. I, one of the most interesting things as I was preparing to have you on is uh, you started your business uh, right before the recession last time, the housing crisis, yeah. and then you built through that. Here you are now, and now we'll see what comes on the horizon. Um, how has that business you know, changed from you know, early days 2005 to now? Well, it's it's a totally different business now. We started as a spec builder, and it was just my wife and I. And we actually, I I was working for a big commercial contractor on the West Coast, um, and we were we had moved back to Seattle and we had rebuilt our house, and we actually bought a house in our neighborhood, tore it down, and we're kind of doing it on the side. And I decided to leave that company, and um, we kind of just rolled into doing spec houses. And I remember really vividly, you know, I had a list of all these commercial contractors I was going to go talk to after I left. And my wife says, why don't you just go build this house? And on that day, I kind of flipped from, you know, making all my decisions with my head and doing them more with my gut. (laughs) And this whole company has been a process of kind of organically building things through, you know, more gut decisions. Um, So back to your original question, um, 
we started off doing specs. It was just my wife and I doing one or two at a time. And the recession came, and we kind of pivoted to doing remodels and customs, and we picked up a couple really nice jobs. Um, I don't know how, but we we did it, and um, then hired a superintendent. And so we actually grew through the recession. We didn't even it didn't it didn't impact us except for the fact that we stopped doing specs, and uh, you know learned a bit of a lesson there, watching a few people that were way overextended. Yeah, let me but before we get to the commercial background to how that's kind of influenced maybe your residential acumen, if you will. But what, what's interesting about the spec market, especially in two thousand five, you know that would have been a good time, right? You're coming out, you're doing spec homes, you're, you did your house, you're doing a neighbor's house that you tear down and build. Um, how how did you not? How were you not in a position like many builders doing a lot of specs, especially at the housing crisis, where now? It was kind of a weird time. You know, banks are calling notes due that I had peers that were making payments like they're building spec homes. They may have a client, you know, they're making payments and the bank comes to them and says, hey, Tom, notes due. You need to pay 100 percent of forward taking the property. I mean, it was just a really weird banking time and it put a lot of people in a tough position, you know, with cash flow and, and financials. Well, I I think the probably the saving grace is I'm kind of a chicken. I didn't go out and do 10 of them at a time. I was doing one or two. And so I remember meeting with the president of the bank, you know, saying, um, you know, you guys are letting all these other people slide on their payments. You're letting all these other people get away with fees and you're nailing me with a fee on every single bill you send me. And he said, Tom, you're paying. So, uh, you know, we just kept paying. (laughs) That was it. He just, he was straight up honest with me. He said, you guys are paying and they aren't. So we're sending you, you know, everything, um, so that's crazy. It was. That's, that's insane. He that, was honest. Yeah, it's crazy that they can say, boy, you're paying, so we're going to hit you with all these fees because we know you're going to pay them, and that's how they're recouping funds from their side. Yeah, and everybody else was just getting off, going bankrupt, and you know, just changing their name. Uh, it's a tough pill to swallow. Do you feel that affected you know, reputation and just you know, business, you know, your, your business entity? Yeah, I think, it, I, I think those – types of decisions where you're making payments even if you don't really have to and you're doing things the right way it's just kind of leads into who you are and you know it's it's kind of the basis for what we do we just we've got a little tagline you know quality craft integrity and that's where it started was way back then it's just doing doing the right thing you know even when other people maybe weren't so with the specs were you pre-selling these at the time you know but or were you waiting until they were finished turnkey moving ready we typically sold them before we were 100% done, but we weren't doing your classic pre-sale. No, we, we typically would build them, get them done, and then put them out on the market. And we typically sold them right about there when we were doing punch list. And so at that time, you know, as you had to pivot with the market doing what it did in 2008 and uh, did you have – I know you mentioned you're a pretty conservative one or two. Did you have a couple out there that were not pre-sold that you had to negotiate, you know – margins and fees and to get those off the books? I had one and I actually had it sold and um, the guy who was buying it, his inspection of his house fell through because he had LP siding and he had water in the crawl space. Otherwise, we would have gotten away with scot-free. Um, so that one, we had to sell at a loss. But I remember a, a mentor of mine, you know, I was, I was just, you know, you may have gone through some of this too, but I was kind of like, man, this is a beautiful house. I'm not selling this for a dime less than what it's worth. I'm just going to rent it out. And a mentor of mine said to me, he said, uh, 
He said, man, this is called retained earnings, bud. You've done well the last four years. You go find a price that somebody's willing to pay, and you cut your losses, and you move on, and you don't even look back. And that was probably the best advice I ever got because, you know, you rent that house out for three or four years. The value goes down to the house. You're dealing with renters. Um, you know, it, it was it was good just to, to make that deal and move on. It's really and then I think I, I think you may remember the government allowed you to go back and claw back some taxes that you had paid on some profits during that period, so you were able to write off some of your losses. Yeah, it's pretty sound advice. I mean, it's 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 pretty tough pill to swallow at times, you know, to lick your wounds and just move on. But essentially, you know, it it when you're in a position that you need cash and operations, you know, you have to make these these really educational decisions because. You know, anyone understands, you know, when you get into real estate investment and, you know, they're not making more land, right? It's not producing more. There is value, but you have to be in a position financially where you can take something or wait or be patient. And not everyone's at that moment, especially you, Tom, starting a young company, you know, you don't have that flexibility. So the liquid wounds move on. I mean, cut your losses per se. I'm sure that was, you know, set you up to be able to pivot and move forward, you know, as you have. Well, I, the, I was really lucky because, again, I was with that commercial contractor and I was an owner there. So I was able to sell my ownership when I went into the residential business. And then we had three, four years, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008, part 2009 that were really, that were good. Um, But I think, you know, where you and I in the residential business, a lot of times we don't have really good, um, you know, business mentors, uh, you know, because we're doing small business. I've been lucky to have some people who were, you know, ran big companies in the Northwest who were able to sit down and tell me things like, you know, retained earnings and, you know, strategies for moving on. And um, he kind of got me out of my headspace where I was kind of being stubborn and made me maybe think like a businessman. And and we don't speak about mentors enough, or maybe most people have no idea how to acquire them. I mean, speak to. Um... You know, just your experience in network, having done big commercial, working with big CEOs, you know, just the value of that network, how those relationships were built and um, maintained over time. Well, I, for some reason, I kind of always thought that the mentor side of things was a great idea. And I had, and my first mentor, a guy named Tom Lindquist, who um, he ran a big commercial development company up here, and then he was involved in Weyerhaeuser and some big timber companies. He's always been a guy who he lived, we live in the same neighborhood. Um, he's always willing to sit down and, you know, talk with me about things. We've done some development since then. Um, I just kind of got lucky. I found the right, the right guy, uh, the right tone for me. Um, and he's been somebody that I've, for the last 17 years, I, I, I sit down with him regularly. And then, you know, when you look at your commercial firm going into the spec world, into residential, you know, how hard of a decision was that? I mean, there's a big contrast between heavy commercial to high end residential. Um, you know, I, I always tell people I come from a commercial background. I did, you know, college construction management. I work for a commercial firm. I've, I've done, been fortunate to work on some big commercial projects. And even now, even with some of the product we're doing, I tell people it's like the Wild West. <laughs> it's, you know, residential construction, the, you know, we have some amazing trade partners. You know, I, I do want to set that tone, but the reality is, there's a far cry from s- some of the sophistication of some of these big commercial firms and organization, and 
you know, automation as opposed to some of these smaller, because as you mentioned, it's all small business. It's a total different entity. Well, so um, the company that I worked for was a company named Howard S. Wright Construction. They have been in Seattle since like 1885. They built the Space Needle, been around forever. And to be honest with you, I never would have thought I was going into residential. <laughs> Most um, commercial guys don't. They're just I like, I'm not I always thought I was going to do commercial and they gave me some great opportunities. Um, I opened an office in San Francisco for Howard S. Wright. I opened an office in Sacramento, California. And so the training they gave me to start my own company was, it was perfect. Um, but really what happened is Howard S. Wright owned Seattle for decades and decades and decades. They built the biggest job in town. They didn't even put up job site signs because everybody knew if it was a monster job, Howard S. Wright was doing it. And, um, but they fell on some really hard times in the mid-80s. They got bought out by a company out of New Zealand. And when I got involved in them, they were down to like $85 million worth of work from a high of like $500 million in the, the mid-80s. And, you know, we built the company back up to, I think when I left, we were doing $850 million. But we had started bringing in people. There was a core of us who built the building or who built the business up. And we were all buddies. And we depended on each other like a lifeline. I mean, literally, when I'm in San Francisco, I'm talking to my my um, partner, Dale, in Portland, and he's passing me back clients like AT&T and Washington Mutual and MCI. And we're, we're and, and then buddy of mine, Chris, is in Phoenix, and um, Paul's up in Seattle. And we were this team. And then all of a sudden, the company started bringing in these bigwigs who they thought that was the way for us to grow to the next level. And really, that was that was where I was like, hey, this isn't for me anymore. And um, I left, and I, we just happened to be doing that house in our neighborhood. And, you know, literally, I, my wife is the one who said, just go build this house. And that was 17 years ago. And it's just been this thing. You know, I would have never thought I was going to get into it. But I, but, I mean, like you probably, I love it now. I mean, I... Commercial buildings, they're all about the earthwork and the shoring and the steel and the concrete. And then it's, you know, acoustical tile and rubber base. And it's right. like, boom. And where in our world, the game starts after you get the house framed. Yeah. You know? And yeah, it's a good perspective. Let me ask you this before we get into kind of that comment there. But, you know, going back to maybe your perspective as an employee, I think this is really valuable, especially now you're an owner of a company. I mean, you were an owner at Howard S. Wright and, you know, worked to a partner. But from an employee's perspective, speak to the company culture. How can that change or be diluted or affected, you know, by bringing in outside people and losing some of that collaboration or handoff or partnership, you know, in these different, you know, cities and territories? You know, it's everything. I mean, um, that's part of what I kind of keep repeating is my decisions are based a lot on my gut. So when I'm interviewing somebody, if I don't feel like they're going to fit in or I feel like they're not a good culture fit for us, it's, it's you, I don't even go any further anymore. And I think that's part of my, I guess, success over the years is, and it's big thanks to my wife is she, she's a big gut person. I mean, a lot, of, I don't know if you're a lot of our wives, I think are, are really for good sure. with their gut. Yeah. And we're the dummies who run around with our brain all the time and run into walls going 60 miles an hour. And, you know, um, pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off. And finally, I, I mean, I just literally said, you're right. 
I got to start going with my gut more. And so I do that with employees now, and it's been great for us. We have a great team, you know, really passionate builders who uh, all jump in and help each other out all the time. Um, you know, this Saturday we got a big project that's turning over. The clients are moving in before Christmas. The house, it's, you know, for a million different reasons, it's not where I want it. Um, but we're all going to gang up on Saturday, and there's going to be 10 of us who, you know, installing cabinet knobs, putting on door stops, putting on hardware, punching, you know, and everybody loves to do it. Everybody, Everybody's in, and it's cool. It's really cool. Yeah, those experiences are pretty neat. I mean, we have some of those as the project comes together and everyone's kind of hammering out, working side by side. There's definitely a unique camaraderie that's built, you know, when it's hands-on and we're all, you know, serving serving each other per se. Yeah, and it's Saturday, you know, half of us aren't getting paid because we're on salary, and but everybody has a good time, and everybody, that's one of the, that's one of the things that people always comment the most about is you do that, and you walk away, and you're like, this is cool, everybody gets along, everybody's here to help each other, and I'm very grateful to have built up a company of people like that that, that want to help each other. You know, it's interesting about our product and companies, Tom, Um you know, because of some of the unique projects we do, it's funny. I've had, you know, when you think about operating procedures and our SOP, um, I've had a commitment for a long time to never finish a home, like in between Thanksgiving and New Year's, right? It's just like you, you and I both understand the complexity. Holidays, trying to get trades here and stuff, and we're glum for punishment because I have one closing Friday and you have one closing Saturday. So uh, wait, somehow wait, wait. I thought you had a, I thought you had a p- procedure not to do that. <laughs> I did have a procedure and <laughs> – I was just going to say I went against that, uh, and and partly because this one's unique. It's you know it's the net zero bill. It's the house of the year. We're trying to get our client in for Christmas, and uh, um, but I, I'm sure you can speak to that. It's you know it's just the complexity of trying to finish this during the holidays. Oh, it's 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 horrible because you know all of a sudden you think the landscaper is going to be doing the finishing touches, and he's he's out hunting, or you know he's taking the week off, and you know everybody's got different things pulling on them and then then everybody seems to be getting sick right now it's just i don't know it's it's definitely a tough time of the year to be doing it but you know the clients they 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 have that stake in the ground it seems like i'm going to be in by thanksgiving i'm going to be in by christmas you hear it all the time and it's always seems to be I, i wish i could i wish i could do that um it doesn't seem like it's something that um is doable because our clients just want to be in seems like it during the holidays. Yeah, they do. And that's why we try to format our schedules to ideally get them in maybe September, October. I know it doesn't always line up perfectly, especially with how complex our industry is. Um, what's interesting, going back to the, uh, the aspect of systems and company culture and fit, uh, you know, I've been really big on this too, is, you know, when you're interviewing people, you know, personality, uh, demeanor, how they carry themselves, how they communicate, you know, these are key factors. Experience is also important. But what I found is that as a company, and I'm sure especially from your commercial background, Tom, is that the more systems that you can have in place, the more clarification for the employees, you can bring them in a little softer landing for a culture fit. Maybe they don't have all the experience, but then you can bring them through that systems. How has that played a role, especially as your company's evolved over the last, you know, 15, 17 years? Well, yeah, we we have a policies and procedures manual, and it's basically I've I've pretty much been using the same system for the last thirty years. The the estimating template, the budgeting templates, um, the the way that we set up our procedures manual is very similar to the first commercial company that I worked with. Um, so 
and and the thing was when I started those offices with Howard S. Wright, we kind of used the same type of formatting. So it was kind of a plug and play type of thing. And so, yeah, a lot of people are surprised to come into a company of our size. And first thing we do is we hand them the procedures manual. And whenever they ask a question, first first response out of our mouth is, have you read the procedures manual? Because that's what my operations manager said to me 30 years ago when I came up and asked him some question about how you set up a budget template. And he said, have you read it? And then sure enough, you go read it. You don't need to ask him anymore. So um, we're lucky in that we do have a, that the system's pretty well set up. Um, and it's funny because clients, when they come into our office to talk to us, one of the biggest selling points of us getting a project with them is showing them our system because it's so simple and it's so um, clear and it's repetitive and they walk out of there they go great this is this is what we want we want that you know computer scheduling computer cost control you know the buyout the subcontracts the milestone logs you know all, all the different things that we do um, that turns into one of our bigger selling points is just explaining to them the systems that we have so it's interesting about that, you know, when you think about just the onboarding, as you have clients come in, speak to that process when they're onboarding, how often are you working with designers, architects, you know, that design community, are you full turnkey, you know, what does that look like for you? Well, when we started out doing the spec projects, my wife would manage the architect and she would do the interiors. Um, as we've grown, we we work with all kinds of different um, high-end architects and interior designers, and um, we get a pretty, probably a 50-50 mix of where a buddy, I, I, we, our dot is a place called Mercer Island, and it's a, it's an island in between Bellevue and Seattle in the middle of Lake Washington, and there's probably 25,000 people, but, you know, like Paul Allen lives here, and, mm -hmm. or, well, used to live here, um, so it's a pretty affluent area, and so I would say half of our projects come from word of mouth where we then go find the architect and we've got a bunch of architects we really like depending on the style that the people want to use um and then the other 50 percent, we get calls from some of these architects that we've worked with over the years and they ask us to be part of a project and so i have you know business development side you know value add of working with different architecture firms you know has that ever hindered growth or opportunities? Do you feel that it's kind of maximized kind of your network and business development plan? I think probably I'm the limiting factor on a lot of that because <laughs> I, I still like to run projects and I get into some, you know, one of the things I've tried to do is run the bigger projects. Um, and when I'm, when you're running a big, you know, 10, $15 million project, you're, you're knee deep into that thing. And it's hard for you to continue your networking and your normal, marketing. So I think that I may be the limiting factor on some of our marketing things. I need to be out there. One of the, like, like with you, it seems like you've got a great organization that allows you to go do other things. Um, we've got a great building organization, but I think from a project management operations standpoint, I could build it up a little more so that I could do more of running the company, marketing, being out there and doing social media things. I, I don't do as good a job of that. As I should. You have some great content, though. You have some great social media on your account already. Well, we, we, we're trying. We're trying. We, we've, we've been um, um, working hard at it, and um, it's definitely eye-opening. There's a lot of different things to be doing. 
Yeah, there are. And and what was the biggest learning experience you had coming commercial to residential? And and you alluded to just an aspect of it. I mean, what's what's really interesting about the commercial side, it's interesting. And, and, and I'll give this example. There's a builder in Orlando. He's part of my Builder 20 group. He just hired his like director of operations from a big commercial firm. And he called me because he's kind of trying to get some advice on you know, social media marketing and kind of, you know, what systems am I using at AFT and, you know, we're using Bluebeam and build a trend and, you know, how are we formatting this? And, you know, his comment, he said, you know, part of his concern about doing commercial was it's a lot of CYA, right? It was just like a lot of paperwork, logistics. I mean, they're working on complicated builds there in Florida and you understand the legal entities that are out there in the commercial world and how many precautions you have to take, you know, from, I mean, real things such as site safety to, um, as you mentioned, the engineering aspect, right? You're building in Seattle, Tom, and it's very complex. Bill in San Francisco, you don't, you, and so there's just a lot of complexities. Whereas residential, you still have a lot of complexities, which most of us, I hopefully understand, but you also get the nice finish element. So, you know, just speak to that um, learning experience, commercial to residential. Well, I think first of all, I'm, I'm. I feel very blessed to have gotten that experience. To have been, you know, I was able to work on Boeing jobs, uh, worked with a job for the Navy, worked with Microsoft, Hilton, you know, a lot of big stuff that um, – so I learned the basics. I learned notifications. I learned documentation. And I've always thought of it in the residential world. It's the exact same thing, but except, you know, stating paragraph 5, you know, um, point 0.2 – we hereby notify you of a changing condition. You you write a nice little note to Mrs. Johnson and say, hey, Betty, thanks for the meeting on site today. Just wanted to reiterate that you wanted to add a second island in the kitchen. Right. It's, it's, it's the same exact process. It's just it's just a much softer delivery. And, and to me, if you follow those same basics that we learned in the commercial world, in residential, it's a really simple, you know, you, you don't get in much trouble. Um, now, with the building complexities, you know, in, in, in Mercer Island and, and Seattle, it's really tight. We got, we got a lot, especially on Mercer Island, we have a, a lot of steep uh, areas, a lot of water. Um, we've got some slide areas. So we do a lot of shoring um, and some complex dirt work stuff with dewatering, you know, trying to build through the wintertime with the amount of water we have. You know, you get into some more complex systems where, again, I'm really fortunate to have gotten some of those heavy construction projects in in my past, which makes some of these more complex residential jobs not not so complex. Well, going back to just you know when you speak about the and and I love the analogy you gave of like referencing a contract of you know how how that changes in commercial and yeah you and I understand the notification how you get with you know either the 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 consultant, the building consultant, third party, or whoever it is you're working with, as opposed to just going with the homeowners, we do. Um, the daily logs has been a big part for us. You know, I look at you know that training for me was really big in the commercial world. That when I was working as a subcontractor, same thing on military bases there in Southern California. You know, and how strict it was when we came in, we sign in, right? We have a scope of work we're doing for the day, where we're performing on the building, and how much manpower and everything we're doing. And, and, and they really use this information. And now I see us using this. I mean, this is a big part of what we do at AFT is the daily logs. And I found this super valuable, not just with our clients and communication and timelines and job costing, but also when the framer says, who's buying schedule and says, well, 
you know, it's because of X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, well, maybe it's because I just went through the daily logs and you had two people here, then you didn't come for three days, you know? And so it just creates some accountability as well. Yeah, we, we've been using uh, Raken for our diaries and it's really simplified and helped us with um, our consistency from our superintendents doing their daily logs. I mean, I'm constantly harping on them that exact same scenario that you're talking about. You know, the earth worker that says, you know, my machine's been sitting on your job for two weeks and then you go back to your diary and you say, no, by the way, it's only been here for two days. Yeah. <laughs> and it's such a beautiful thing and it's so simple. But there's so many of, you know, our residential builder friends, they don't they do not do some of these things and they get in trouble. So, Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, and the big thing is the photo documentation. We always had the photo back up. And now we're doing, you know, especially before we drywall and close the house, we're doing, you know, the full Matterport cameras and stuff. And it's become super valuable. Um, going back to the Mercer Island stuff, which is pretty unique, you know, for you to build there with these tight spaces. Uh any concern, you know, exposure, you mentioned dewater, you know, dewatering, which you have to do and, you know, a lot of shoring and stuff, build times. How does that affect build times and expectations with your clients and timeframes? Well, we, you, you kind of get used to what you're going to need to do. Um, and luckily we have clients who are willing to pay for the shoring. So we don't get into situations where we start digging a big hole and all of a sudden water and slough in and all kinds of stuff's happening and we've got to then regroup and bring shoring in you know after the fact so um we 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 know this area and we kind of know what's coming down the line and so um we kind of plan for it the the biggest thing on the build times that we've run into is just um, undocumented utilities, you know, where you've got somebody who has bootlegged a power line underground through your site and you've got to go through, you know, with Puget Sound Energy and redo the easements and relocate the utilities and just undocumented things are some of the, the worst things because, you know, there's not a lot of places to go with some of these utilities in these tight areas and you can't just cut off, you know, the power to somebody's house just because they're running through um, your lot undocumented, you know, what's interesting about that. So like we have, I mean, we're not as, um, we probably don't have as much undocumented stuff in Arizona, especially on some of the new areas, you know, where it's farmland or desert, um, where you may just be in, you know, in a city and who knows what's happened in the last hundred years, as you mentioned. Um, so we blue stake, you know, they come out and occasionally you'll find something or an easement, you know, that we have to work through. How, how does that work when you find, someone who's done something illegally or undocumented, you know, through your property line, of course, your client most likely is going to have to take the brunt of that. And then you're going to have to figure out temp power situations and relocation. You know, how does that affect timeline, budget costs, expectations, and, you know, some of the experiences you had in the past? Well, it's, it's, you know, I think a lot of people's reaction at first is like, you know, forget that he's going to have to deal with that. You know, he's (laughs) going to have to, and then they come quickly to the realization that, you know, it's going to be their, their issue, their problem. It's their lot, you know, um, it's not the necessarily the neighbor's problem. Um, it's a, it's a uncomfortable conversation, but I think everybody kind of comes back to the same conclusion that the, the utility was there and the system was there, um, for quite some time. And, um, you know, the, the new property owner is typically the one, if they want to keep moving, you know, which most people, they don't like to stop and negotiate and, try and get the neighbors to 
to buck up. They just want to keep moving. So they quickly find a way to relocate it and get it out of the way. And that's usually, that's usually the fastest and the cheapest way is to just keep moving, you know, get it out of the way. But the worst part is when you run into some of these, you know, um, government, you know, utility companies and, you know, cable companies and the people that have the big duck banks. And that's where you get into having to rewrite easements and deal with, you know, groups that don't have the same sense of urgency that, that you do. And um, then the clients can get a little bit frustrated. This episode is brought to you by Pella Windows. When it comes to building homes at AFT, almost every project has Pella Windows. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relationships with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers. Because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. Their their company culture, their integrity, their honesty. You know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra-contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. Yeah, especially when you're working with the municipality and city, they definitely, and, and, and you know, even some of these big private power companies and stuff like we have in Phoenix, it's the same thing. They're not going to move, you yeah. know, as quickly or be as easy, or they may have a department of 600 people and you're trying to find the right person to like abandon the easement or relocate or put in a new transformer, get three phase power, whatever it may be. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, it's interesting. So we, we deal with this a little bit on our side. I mean, I, I just went through last week and I was with the client because we have a site wall issue where, and I can't remember the term, it's it's leaving me right now, but essentially the, the, the home that the client bought, the site wall is encroaching on their side. It's on their property line, but it's been there 12 years. You know, there's the previous owner built it on the wrong location. And so technically the neighbor could come back who has more space and say pack sand because we're over 10 years and we're already under this, you know, the, the eminent, law, eminent, the, domain. I, eminent domain. Yeah. That I don't have yeah. to change it. So it is what it is, but you know, ideally you have a good neighbor. It's like, no problem. If you want to pay for the wall, move it back, get it on the property line. I mean, and, and some neighbors are good and maybe they have some stipulations. And what I found is, you know, that relationship with the neighbor is really important because neighbors can make or break your experience building, especially on tight lots. I mean, how do you build rapport and relationships with neighbors in tight communities? Because one, it could be a pain in your side throughout all construction. Number two, it could lead to other business development as well, being a good neighbor. Yeah, I think just doing the simple things, you know, making sure your superintendent hands out his card to all the people in the neighborhood and reiterates to him, hey, call me, you know, don't call the city, don't call my client. If you got a problem, if there's a truck parked out in the road, you know, I'm available all the time. So that's the number one thing is just just being a good neighbor, you know, handing out your card, being accessible. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, sweeping the street and, you know, waving to people, just common courtesy. Um, I think that is a 
a big deal. Most people get upset when contractors are just in their own little world and not paying attention to the neighborhood that they're in. So when you see a superintendent come out and say, hey, sorry, I'm blocking you, you know, apologize, how you doing? Go call, call you by your name. That's the that's the biggest. And, and but some neighbors, you know, you you probably know the same thing. You're they're just they're just not the type of neighbor that you're <laughs> going to get along with. And so you just do the right thing. Um, always be take the high road, and you know, like I say, do your best, forget the rest, type of thing. Yeah, do your best and and forget the rest. I like that. But I think the sweeping street's good, you know. And you you'll deal with this mud. We had some rain out here, and someone drives through the street, you, you know water it down, clean it up, you know, that's, it's just good. And, and the point of contact I like, you know, just communicating with your neighbors as a good point of contact. So they have someone to reach out to for you guys in Washington, though, it was a little unique. I don't know how it was on Mercer Island. I was imagining the same, but I know a lot of residential construction struggled through COVID because you guys were one of the few areas in the country that actually shut down. I mean, a lot of businesses were shut down for COVID construction typically was not, it was considered essential. Did that impact you getting permits, inspections, and having projects move along? Yep. Um, you know, the funny part is um, we were only shut down for five weeks. And um, so compared They're on the island? On the island yeah. was only five weeks? Whereas yeah. I know most of Seattle's like shut down for, for a long time. No, we were well, – residential construction was shut down for five weeks. And so um, – compared to my buddies in technology and some of these people in Seattle are still at home. You know, it's, it's crazy. It's gone on forever. Um, so I kind of feel like I have been in a COVID cocoon. I haven't, I haven't dealt with it much. We, we still went into the office. Uh, we have a small office, you know, and so we didn't do much of the whole mass thing in the office. We did it out in the field. Um, and we, tried to give our keep our separation on the field but yeah we were only shut down for five weeks so we did have a couple clients who you know really wanted to see us continue working but um we we shut it down um unlike there were some people that kind of kept working because they were like i'm you know i need to work um but uh we shut her down for a little bit you guys didn't shut down at all down in phoenix no we uh in phoenix we anticipated that it was, it was kind of a weird time when I'm like, do I send people home? Do we keep working? And then right away, you know, our governor came out and said, no, construction is considered essential. You know, they kind of listed the essential businesses. Um, but one of my builder 20 members builds in Seattle and where they were at, I know residential was essentially shut down. I mean, yeah, people want to come up and work and, you know, essentially you could probably have people working and maybe get some of the banking or cash flow, but you couldn't get inspections because the city wasn't coming out inspecting. And so at some point in the schedule, you just come to a com- complete stop and you have to wait until, you know, it frees up. Yeah. We, we just did not get impacted that, that badly. That's good. That's really good. Yeah. You know, when you speak about some of the software you're using now, um, you mentioned how you're doing your daily logs, what other software, you know, what, um, what are you using to kind of organize and manage your team? Well, again, I've been using literally this this process that I've you know had for the last thirty years. For for accounting, we use QuickBooks, mm-hmm. um, but for setting up our budgets, doing our estimating, um, and doing a lot of our logs, it's Excel um, and Word. We we have not gotten into um, the whole um, like Builder Trend and some of these other systems because um, it seems like. They're either way too big or they want to take over our accounting system. 
And I, I had a bad experience um, way back. God, I'm dating myself now, but I was on a Boeing job in the 90s, and they wanted us to use a new system. I forget the name of a, you know, it was it was a, like a Procore. It was, no, it was called Expedition. I don't know if you remember Expedition, but Boeing wanted us to use Expedition. So we transferred everything into Expedition, and about six months into the job, it, we were sideways, and nothing was working, and the program was a, was bad, and we dumped it, <clears throat> and it it crushed us. Um, so I think I'm a little bit hesitant to jump into some of these new Procores and Builder Trends and whatever else is out there um, just because the system we have works. Um, of course, it's Excel, so you got to watch out for logic issues, mm-hmm. but we've got some double checks. Um, I'm wide open to bringing something in. The thing I'm really wanting to find is something that can really help organize our plans and our photo documentation and all the different pieces of information that we get on our jobs. Because what I've noticed lately is, okay, the young guys are using Bluebeam. The architects are using Dropbox. The interior designers are using some other program. And before you know it, you're like, where, where's the latest documents at? You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm like kind of old school. I like to, I have a set of drawings that are clipped together. And when I get a new drawing, I write revised over the old one and I put the new one on top. And so the weird part is I find myself being more up to date than some of these people who have these really fancy programs um, because everything's changing so much. I, I don't know. I like when, like you may run into it too. You go over, you, you meet with a new person in the office about an estimate and you're like, hey, show me your drawings. Show me where you highlighted you know, all the notes, show me where you highlighted all the details. And they're like, well, I'm using Bluebeam, so I don't, I don't highlight or, or, and I don't know. I'm, I'm having a tough time with some of this stuff. I, even if somebody does Bluebeam for their estimating, I still want a set of drawings and I still want to see that you marked off everything in a, with a highlighter. I just want to see that. Yeah. And, and you can do that in Bluebeam. I know that we're layering and stuff and do that in Bluebeam on our site, but, but I understand the complexity. And this is part of like, as we evolve as business owners writing and trying to tie this in and, you know, something for us, you know, I, I work on a MacBook, right? And so we have Mac. And so a lot of people use Google Drive, which never formats great with what I'm doing. And there's Dropbox and, you know, that the landing page is really important. And whether you are looking at build a trend or, Procore, there are, you know, some of these project management softwares that can put everything together. So you have the latest and greatest and even implement, you know, Bluebeam and, 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 and layers. And that's something that, um, you, you know, we spent a lot of time, right, on that, as I'm sure you have. So it's interesting that you have some of your staff using Bluebeam. I mean, is that something that you had used previously when you did commercial or was that just kind of their experience as they come into the company? Yeah, it's, well, it's the new folks that are coming in that, that really liked the Bluebeam and, the, and they found it really useful. And, um, you know, I, I first ran into it when um, I saw some of our superintendents using it to set up their RFIs, you know, because it was so easy for them to work with and they were able to make such clear documentation. So I actually saw it first with the superintendents. And then I've got a, some kids that are my, my kids that are in the business in the commercial world and, you know, my daughter Lauren is like, "Hey, Dad, are you using this? Hey, Dad, are you doing this?" And so I kind of get introduced to it by the younger, you know, generation, which is weird because I don't feel like I'm that old. Um, <laughs> but I, it sure goes, it sure sneaks up on you quick. Oh, it sure does. So uh, you have kids that are in the business, and are any of them there at Gallagher Co? Um, well, funny you ask that. I've got three kids. Uh, my oldest, I told him, I told him. Um, that out of college they couldn't come work for us. 
that they had to go out in the real world, get a job, because like you and me, it was so beneficial to go out and work for a big company and learn the good things and the bad things, learn the procedures and and everything. And then, so what I told them is, I want you to go out in the world for at least five years, um, learn, and then if you want to come back and work for us, then you'll be in a position to take us to the next level. You'll you'll bring something back which is going to improve us. Um, I've seen with some of my friends in the business where the kids just came to the business from college, they're, they're just doing what dad did and they're not raising the bar. Mm-hmm. So um, my daughter's working for a big commercial company doing an Amazon job in downtown Bellevue. Um, I don't even know if I'm going to get her back. They're treating her. They're doing a great job uh, teaching her. Um, and yeah, we'll see if she comes around. My son, Joey, he's in college right now. Um, and then my middle daughter, she's been in Nashville the last couple of years doing interior design. Interesting. So they're all involved in the industry. Um, yeah. Was that by design that they're like, okay, dad, we're going to family, like follow that? Or uh, was it just kind of something they decided to do on their own? They, they did it on their own. I mean, my son was probably the one who was like, you know, I told him when he was growing up, when he was like 10, 11, 12 years old, I said, hey, you're going to come work for us someday um, just to learn how to work. And he's like, you know, dad, I'm never going into construction, so I don't know why you want me to work for you. And and I said, well, Joey, I said, you know, everybody needs to learn how to, you know, work on their house. So even if you don't come work for us, you know, you, you'll at least know how to, you know, use a screwdriver and, and repair your own drawers at home. And um, anyways, over the years, he got into it, and now he digs it, and um, – he worked for my cousin doing heavy commercial concrete downtown one summer, and he worked for my framer doing framing for a summer, and he worked for us as a laborer. And um, boy, he both both Lauren and Joey they're they're going to be really good someday. I, I hope they decide to come back. Is is Lauren the one that's doing design, or is she doing the Amazon commercial one? Lauren's doing the Amazon job. Okay. Anna is the interior design. And so so with Anna, I mean, uh, is she going into residential or commercial design? She's been doing residential. Wow. So is there going to be some future collaboration between you two? I, you know, maybe. I mean, I hope so. I hope one of these days they want to kick me out of here. (laughs) It's amazing. Well, that's fun. It's interesting to see uh, because I do have some peers, right, as their kids are getting into kind of the same stage as you are. And, um, you know, a, a good friend of mine, he has two daughters and they're both did construction management at University of Florida. Okay. And they're both working commercial, probably similar to you. And he's like, they're supposed to – like, this is my exit strategy. They're supposed to come and take the family business so I can run off totally. into the sunset. And he's like, I don't think they're coming back. They're doing I, too well in the commercial world. That's exactly the way I feel. I'm like, <laughs> I think this might have backfired on me. <laughs> well, it's good. You've raised good kids. I mean, how – you know, when you think about life balance and complexity, having family, three kids, your wife did design with you early on, you know, wearing these hats, you know – any advice for those listening, how you can manage, you know, the family aspect, the company aspect, still find time. Construction is not the most family friendly at times. You know, there's late hours. You mentioned Saturday, we're trying to get jobs closed for the holidays. And, you know, it's, it's a tough industry. It's a stressful industry. It's up and down. Um, you know, what have been some keys to success for, there's no such thing as life, you know, work life balance, but what, what have you done? I think, um, the thing that I've always – well, first of all, I don't think I would have ever been able to be involved in my family as I have been able to if I hadn't started my own business. you know. And I'm 
uh, and for the first six years we worked out of the house and so i was here all the time picking them up from school doing whatever in between meetings um but the biggest piece of advice i give to my younger guys in the company or is is be a coach you know go to that game i will never ever say you know you can't do you can't hit your kids game you you got to go to your kids game you got to do that stuff because you know there's never been a vacation that you came back and the world fell apart there's never been a game that you attended and if you're if you're a dedicated employee you find a way to get it done so i've always said as long as you're getting your stuff done I don't care if you take off for two hours in the middle of the day to go see a game. I want you to. Um, so we really push all of our employees to to spend time with the family and go on vacation and be at ball games and be a coach. Because you know, I don't know if you've run into it, but you know, I was coach of the little uh, little league coach, and I, I ran the little league on Mercer Island, and I met half my clients through baseball. You know, half our clients in the you know the last ten years have been baseball families, and so um, it's a great way to meet new clients it's a great way to meet new people and it's especially a great way to hang out with your kids and and figure out get to know their friends i mean geez i i wouldn't know half my son's friends if i didn't coach all the little guys yeah i I love that advice you just left us with because as you as you break that down um you know tom as you're thinking through that is that with just the business development side. I mean, you think about the value of having good company culture, good people. When the people understand that you're going to fight for them and their personal time, because a lot of our people that work for us, you know, they're dedicated to Gallagher Co., right? They're dedicated to the brand and they want to build it and they, you know, they, they want to have longevity there. And so because of that, they're willing, to, hey, you give them some time off in the morning, they're going to pay it back twofold coming on a weekend or staying late one night when they can and, and work around that. But you also mentioned, you know, being the, being active in the community. A lot of people say, well, Brad, how do I grow my business? How do I get my name out there? How, you know, and as you mentioned, when you're serving in the community and you're coaching and teaching and, you know, with the youth and these parents whose kids are there, like they may be a CEO and they can't coach, but they're there with their kids and you're supporting them. And, you know, these connections are made and, you know, you can't put enough value on that by, by taking that extra step and making that time commitment. No doubt. Cause I, I remember when I was in, the commercial world, I mean, you, you knew the big architects in town. You read the Daily Journal of Commerce. You, you went to the luncheons. You went to the um, different organizations. And you, you, you would know almost every project that was out there. But then you go into the residential world, and you're like, wait a minute. There's no business no book. here. Yeah. There's no nothing. And you're like, how do you – and the only way to find new work is word of mouth and joining organizations and being on the school board and – um, so they kind of work, they work hand in hand and it's, yeah. it's cool. Yeah. I love that aspect of it too. And I've seen that, you know, and it takes time because it's, you're always planting seeds, right? And, and this is part of marketing. You know, there's one thing from the social media side, whether Instagram and LinkedIn and these different avenues, you can go and get brand recognition and have seven points of sale and, you know, be in front of people. But another thing is it's just that face to face, you know, rec leagues and basketball and baseball, you know, and, and youth and, you know, my, my older daughters are in musical theater and, you know, we'll, we'll sponsor the musical theater and go. And, you know, so I th- just think that opens up a lot of opportunities that I've seen because as you s- stated perfectly in commercial, you know, every job that's coming, you know, what's up for permit, you know, what government entities are bidding stuff. And in the residential, you have no idea where that next lead's going to come. Yeah, no idea. And then the weird part is now that my kids are in college, I'm like, okay, there's no more little league. And so now you're searching for that next <laughs> layer of, and so it's it's been a weird transition for me 
um, it's and our our company has evolved to where now I'm going. I know a lot more architecture, so you're going to architect, you know, open houses, and you're you're being involved in that. But um, yeah, now it's more like I'm trying to find guys who like to fish. You're like, <laughs> I want to find people who want to fish because that's that's then my next group. I hope. You may certainly to get into golf, and I talk about it all the time, Tom. I think it's about time to get into the country club and meet some golfers too. Uh, man, that's a, that's a lots a lot of time spent. <laughs> no, it is. So, what do you see in you know statement of econ- like kind of where do you see uh, the economy? You know, next year, how are things looking? Uh, backlog next year, years to come. Uh, what are you forecasting? Well, I, you know, I'd be interested to see what what you're seeing and in, and in, in, in your neck of the woods. But what I'm seeing up here is kind of just a return to normalcy a little bit. I think next year is going to be more of a normal year. Uh, we've definitely had a few projects that have been um, delayed or I don't know. I, I, I don't think they're going to be canceled. Um, like, for instance, I've got an Amazon family who they rely really big on the stock price and the stock's way down. So they're like, hey, we're going to, we're going to hold for a while, wait until things come back, see where the world is next year. So that one's on hold. Um got some people who live in the Bay Area that have a second home up here that are like, hey, let's just see where where the world goes. So a lot of the bigger stuff, I'm seeing a pause. Um, but the remodel stuff, we've got them, you know, lots of remodels set up for next year with a, with a few ground ups. Um, so it just seems like, you know, it's been four years of just an all out sprint. Um, and I think everybody's pretty pretty tired and so i think people are looking forward to a little bit of a normal year um i don't know what are you are you seeing anything changing down there yeah it's interesting i've I felt the same thing i feel like it's gonna be a little bit more of a normal year what's unique about what i'm seeing at least and especially as a network with contractors is you and i i, I lived through the last recession you know i graduated college in 05 i worked for a big firm i worked through that and you know 2010 11 12 phoenix was like just a dead stop, screeching halt. Yep. Nothing was happening here in the Southwest. Uh, that's not the case right now. I know that is the case with production. You know, production is totally coming to a stop. But I'm seeing commercial. They still have plenty of starts. They're still moving, even with the variable interest rates that are out there. Uh, the the residential world's still moving. I, I do see a lot of my clients actually now who are kind of like in a holding pattern are like, hey, let's go. Pricing's kind of working in our favor. Let's optimize this. We're in a position to do so. I still have some clients that are now, I don't want to say canceling, but they are putting on pause. Some of it's personal stuff. Some of it's economy and stock market, as you mentioned, and uncertainty of the future. But I think health-wise, instead of this crazy boom where it's just been going nuts for so long, um, it's going to be more you know, regulated growth or at least consistency. And, and we still have quite a bit of backlog of people that are still in design. And, um, you know, our biggest issue that we've had to be honest, Tom, is that, uh, the design, the design and architecture has taken so long from our yep. consultants and MP and E and civil, and then getting permits and the clients get exhausted, you know, waiting so long emotionally, you know, a year when it should be three months to get these permits. And, and that's what's taken the biggest toll. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. hundred percent. How long is your typical build time? Like when you, a client onboarding, when they come to you, Tom, you know, what's that typical process and pre-con and then build time? Well, I'd say for a normal house, it's the process is probably somewhere between 22 and 24 months for a normal house. You know, you 
come on board, spend six months in design, spend six months in permitting, and then go build the house in 12 to 14 months, something like that. Um, but we've had the last few years, we've had some monsters that have literally, we, we are just finishing a build right now that we've been involved in this piece of property for four and a half years. And so we, we started down by the water. We built out the land, a hardscape area down by the water, which we were going to be blocked um, when we demoed the house next door. So we, we demoed the house next door. We did the waterfront. We built the multipurpose building with the ballroom and the car garage, and now we're doing the main house, and we're just moving them in right now. And, boy, it's it's been a – that one was a long one. And we've had a couple of those um, the last few years where they were 26 to 30-month builds. Has it so, been difficult when you're working, you know, with a home such as as, as complex as that one, and then you're doing some remodels too and other new builds, you know, complexity, trade base, you know, systems internally between, you know, the different product you're putting out there? Well, I, I think, first of all, anytime you're doing a four-year job, it it gets strained. I think it's I think it's just plain difficult. I don't think clients understand when they're building a 15,000 square foot house, how big of an effort it is for them. You know, it's, it's tough on them. I mean, the, the length of time to put in place, you know, that much work. Um, and, and you're, and especially in your team, I mean, you've got trucks lined up down the road every day, you know, you're putting in, you know, 300, 350 man hours of work every day, but the project just takes such a long duration. I think those, I think those projects in general, I don't know how, as an industry, we can give our clients a better heads up as to how difficult and long that process is. You know, the 12 to 14 month house, um, 5,000 square feet. You know, those are those are cool, and they go they go by, and people see the framing, they're like, wow, and you put the windows in, and it's wow. And, you know, and pretty soon you're putting in cabinets, and it's wow. But boy, you get on these monsters, and it's tough. And then trying to then then the thing that you run into and you probably run into the same thing is you know you have your favorite electrician you have your favorite stone guys and all of a sudden you've got them on three jobs at the same time right and and one of your superintendents is like hey i need i need him over on my place and you're like well we need him over here and you start fighting yourself almost internally with some of these big jobs that you know typically that stonemason can bounce around three jobs and deal with it but now he's on a job where it's a monster and you plugged them up for the rest of your organization. So you, sometimes you run into where you're, you're almost, you're almost battling yourself. Yeah. What's interesting about that is we have, we're probably like you, you know, we have, I mean, my net zero house is 4,000 square feet. It's like 3,800, but I have a house that's 25,000. And then I have two neighboring houses that are 25 and 35, 60,000 between the two. And then I have some, you know, six, eight, 10,000. But what's tough is like, to your point, some of these big ones, you know, one of my mentors told me, he said, look, Brad, most marriages last three years, right? And here you are doing a four-year bill for a client. And so you're like essentially longer than most people are married and you're well, not <laughs> most people, but you're essentially, you know, you're trying to build this relationship and it can become strained and trades become tired and they become, you know, when there's so many bathrooms and there's so much detail that they can become snow blind and exhausted. And, you know, it's always something that that we try to set a good expectation and builders should recognize and designers and, and architects as well. When that's a big house, you better have systems in place. You better understand the process. You better set, expe- you know, set those expectations because 
it is not the same as you know a, a three thousand square foot Rambler. No, not at all. And and the worst part is when they're like, "Hey, where's our electrician?" And you're like, "Well, he's down the down the end of the street doing a remodel, you know, for us." Yeah. And yeah, you got to watch it where you are penalizing yourself. Well, to be sensitive to time here, Tom. What do you do for fun? You mentioned fishing. I yeah, I'm I love to get out on my bike. You know, it's it's funny. Um, used to be a big runner. You know, the cold CrossFit thing. I drank the Kool Aid. I did all that, <laughs> but just kind of tore myself up over time. And so, over time, my um, avenues for activity, my my body's telling me to to narrow it. So, I've pretty much mostly on the mountain bike or the road bike or the gravel bike that that's been my go-to choice um in the winter time um like to get out and skate ski i don't know if you've ever done any skate skiing that's a great way to work out if you can't if you can't do the jogging anymore because the knees aren't aren't as good um i'd love to get back into golf again someday i played golf when i was a kid but i don't as much anymore just because you know i spent enough time on my road bike and my mountain bike well, you're not too far from Whistler, right? You can get up to Vancouver and Whistler. I mean, it's it's a little haul to get up there, but there's some good mountain biking for sure. Yeah, there's some. My, well, my wife and I got engaged up at Whistler 30 years ago, and wow. um, I haven't been back since. We we spend a ton of time in Eastern Washington. There's some really. My wife grew up in a small town in Central Washington, and so we spend time in a town called Wenatchee a lot, Leavenworth, mm-hmm. and there's great mountain biking. Um, my folks. Um, have a place down in Tucson. I've done some mountain biking oh, yeah? down in your neck of the woods. Yep. I've the jumping choya has yeah. gotten me. <laughs> I've I've plucked a few of those out of my arm by getting too close <laughs> to those bad boys. The jumping choya is funny. So anyone listening, listen. I have a buddy who didn't know what those were, and we went golfing. Funnily enough, and they were all over him every time he went in the desert. He's like covered in. I'm like, what are you doing? But they don't realize that they you get close enough, they pounce right on you, and you get stuck with them. So. Your yeah. dog, you know, dogs, pets. I mean, they're very common that they get them everywhere. Yeah, no, it's 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 no joke. And then <laughs> and then just just seeing the darn trail in Arizona. Yeah, I don't, I mean, you have to have like a GPS system to see the darn trail. Yeah, it's a little bit tougher, and you have a lot of good biking up there, so you don't have to track to whistle all the time. So um, no, that's good. Yeah, uh, what do you have upcoming and exciting? Um, well, you know, like I say, the exciting part for me this year is just I think that I, I'm kind of excited to take a little breath. To be honest with you, um, uh, we've we've got some cool jobs coming around the corner, but um, I think just I think the whole company is collectively looking to just take their foot off the gas a little bit. I mean, we our guys have literally been working Saturdays for the last four or five months, just getting some of these monsters off our plate. So um, I'm looking forward to everybody kind of re-energizing um, over the first part of the year, and then. You know, seeing what the rest of the years, I'm, I'm really interested to see what the world looks like in next September. You know, everybody's talking about interest rates coming down after the first of the year and or at least the interest rate hikes stopping and what that's going to do. And it seems like, you know, my experience tells me that these recession type of things, they last a lot longer than anybody ever says they're going to. You know, even in 2009, 2010, it was like, you know, everybody said it's going to stop in April. It's going to stop, and it stops when when you don't expect it to. So I think that maybe some next year might might be interesting. Yeah, it'll be interesting as we track that. And, you know, I really appreciate just the time spent, Tom, and expertise and, you know, candor and 
you know, just the, what you've done for the industry and especially what you're doing. It's, it's very exciting. So for those to continue to follow you, we'll have you tagged, but where can they find you? Uh, well, let me see. Um, uh, GallagherCo.net um, is our uh, website and then Instagram, uh, GallagherCo LLC. Well, Tom, you've been amazing. Can't thank you enough for making time to come on the podcast today. Yeah, hope to get a chance to meet you in person one of these days. I'll might you have to drop in your office someday. Do it. Come to Scottsdale next time you're in Tucson. Are you going to go to IBS in uh, in January to the Biller Show in you Vegas? Know, I've never I've never been somebody to go to those uh, things. I'm again I'm I'm trying to get myself more into. I I think this year we're going to um, do a little bit more um, peer group stuff. I think do a little bit more uh, getting out. Um, so yeah, I need to I need to put more of those things on my list. Well, if you do that, hit me up. We'll be there. So, uh, and, and, and we'll see you on the net, you know, next time you're in Phoenix. So thanks, Tom. Sounds good. Thanks. Take it easy, Brad. So thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. And just as a recap, if you check the show notes, they're just going to have all the links for the topics that we discuss. And also one of our favorite features now is the chapters that go through the conversation. So if there's certain topics you want to revisit or listen to, they're outlined by the time that we discuss those. And again, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. Please make sure and download our podcast, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your podcast.